If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 8, and I hope you brought your Bibles with you in Luke chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible on you, but you've got your smartphone, you can actually follow along with us at fbcgillitsville.com slash gyrus. And so that's fbcgillitsville.com slash gyrus. There it is there. Um, we're going to talk about Jairus's encounter with Jesus, but it actually is two encounters in one. Today's kind of a sale. You get a two-for-one miracle sale uh, today as we talk about these two these two people. And here's what we, we, we're doing this summer is uh, this series called Close Encounters of the Jesus Con. We're looking at Jesus interaction with people and how their lives were transformed. And what we discover when we get to Luke chapter eight is in the midst of Luke chapter eight are four miracles that occur just right one after the other. And there's a purpose behind these four miracles. It, it, historically, they happened in this way, but there's also a purpose for Luke putting them together this way. Is because he is trying to demonstrate in this um, four episodes that comprehensive power of Jesus. And so in the ancient world, there were four things that people were deathly afraid of. Four things that scared people to death. First of all was the weather. Because they didn't know what was coming. They didn't have anybody that told them weather was happening, what was happening with weather, when it was coming, what it would look like, what it would happen with it. Like, they just had weather happen to them. I mean, today, we can open up my phone, I can open my phone, and I can tell you within the minutes of how long it's going to rain, when it's going to start raining. I've got that hour by hour. I know what it's going to be like two or three days. We knew last week we were planning, we, we stayed an extra day in St. Louis to go to the zoo. We were so excited that they were calling for record high temperatures on the day we went to the zoo. We had 105 heat index, but we were prepared for it. We knew it was coming. In the day that Jesus is teaching, they didn't have any radars or barometric pressure gauges. They didn't have weathermen telling them correctly or incorrectly what's going to happen. So they woke up every morning not having a clue. And it scared them. Especially if it was a violent storm. And at the beginning of this four stories, and we're not going to talk about the first two, but I'm going to tell you what they were. The beginning of it is they're out in a boat. Jesus has been teaching all day. He's been weary from teaching. There are huge crowds. And he says, let's just get away from it. Let's just, let's just I'll settle down. Let's get my guys and let's get away for a few minutes so that we can just process, so we can rest, so we can just have a few moments to ourselves. They get in the boat. Jesus gets in there. He takes a nap and the weather goes nuts. And Jesus gets up and literally the words he says to the wind, to the rain is be muzzled. Quit it. Stop. Quit. And as soon as Jesus says be muzzled, what happens? It stops. Calm. They get to the other side of the lake, and while they're on the other side of the lake, a man who has been demonized, who has demons within him, comes up to Jesus and starts to talk, and Jesus is talking to him. He's about to cast him out, and the demons say, just throw us into the abyss, and Jesus says, I will, but I'm going to put a step in between that. And he takes them and he puts them in the pigs, you know that story, and then the pigs run. And in their day and time, not only were they deathly afraid of weather, they were also deathly afraid of evil spirits, of things that were evil in the supernatural world taking control of them. And in those two episodes, Jesus says, I've got control over the weather i've got control over the spirits now just imagine if you're one of his disciples at this moment you've seen some cool stuff by this time but at this point you're like literally what they say who is this guy who is this 
Now, we all know the stories. We know it's Jesus, and so we kind of read them through the lens of already knowing the end. But can you imagine if you're out on Old Hickory Lake and the storm comes up and thunder and lightning's happening, it looks like a water spout coming towards you, and one of the friends in the boat just stands up and says, Quit it! And everything just stops? If you're walking down the streets of downtown Nashville, this may not be such a hypothetical situation. And somebody comes up to you and it's obviously showing signs of possession or evil spirits or something's happening there. And the guy says, hey, all you spirits in out, get out, get in those pigs over there. And the pigs run off. You see all this. You're like, well, what is happening? When we pick up the story in chapter 8, verse 40. What we see is Jesus gets back to the other side of the boat. So we get to Genesis, I mean Genesis, Luke chapter 8, verse 40, and it says, Now when Jesus returned, so he comes back, the crowds welcomed him, and they were all waiting for them. So they had seen him leave, and they just said, We're just going to stand right here and wait until he gets back. And when he gets back, we'll be ready for him. It'll be exciting. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, there's some dispute about what that means. Most people, most scholars don't think that that means he was a priest, that he wasn't necessarily a professional clergy, that he was a layman, but his job as a layman was to coordinate the entire thing that happened at the synagogue in worship. What what scriptures they were going to read, where they got the scrolls from, if they have to exchange that with other synagogues, who was going to preach that week, what music was going to be sung, who was going to sing it. And so in some ways he's kind of like a modern day worship leader, but without doing the music. He was just the coordinator. He just got it all together. But either way, he would have been somebody, everybody that was Jewish in that town would know. You realize that in their day and time, they didn't have 14 churches on Main Street in Goodlettsville. Like, you know, they don't have churches everywhere. They had a synagogue, and if it was a synagogue, everybody in town knew who the leader, who the ruler of the synagogue was. And so they let him through, and he gets there to the front. Here's what happens when he gets there. He falls at Jesus' feet. He implores him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. There are lots of words that Luke uses in that passage to show us the desperation that is in this man's life. He fell at Jesus' feet. He implored, the the word there means beg, plead. Only daughter. She's 12, and she's dying. We know the end of the story, so it's easy for us to kind of jump to that. But I want you to feel the desperation in this man's life. Maybe you've been there. Maybe your family has been there when you've lost a child or you've lost someone way too early. And this dad is falling literally at the feet of Jesus and saying to him, you've got to do something. That's a big move for him. He's the ruler of the synagogue. People all around would have known who he was. This would have been in some way giving credence to what Jesus was teaching. And at this moment in the history of the Jewish people, they didn't know whether they wanted Jesus having that power yet. And he had already had a run in at this particular synagogue and it hadn't gone well. But this ruler of the synagogue's like, I, I, I don't care. Whatever needs to happen, needs to happen. The word she was dying there, by the way, in the original language means literally she was almost dead. She was at death's door. She was done. It's an urgent 
situation, immediate situation. As a dad, I, I can't think of anything more painful than the picture that is said here. Now, one of my four kids in that situation, what I would do to see it right, I can't imagine. And Jesus went. Another, this, by the way, this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We just chose the Luke passage. But in the other ones, you get the sense that immediately the guy says, all right, here's what's happening. And Jesus says, let's go, let's go. Compassionately, let's go. And as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. As you can imagine this scene, thousands of people. Jesus says, Jairus, let's go. Lead the way. I need to know where to go. Show me where to go. And as Jairus is leading the way, the crowd is parting a little bit as Jesus is walking through. But it's also like they're trying to reach out and grab. They're also trying to touch. They're trying to see. They're trying to be a part of this. We still see this today when people walk off the court after a particularly good basketball game. Or a president comes to town and everybody wants to gather around and get as close as possible. When a big event happens, people are pressing into each other. They're trying their best to get up there. They're trying their best to touch him. And as Jesus is walking through that crowd, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, how old was the girl? How old was the girl? 12. How long has she had this? 12. I don't think it's coincident because I don't think the Bible has coincidences in it. I think that it's meant to show us that as long as this little girl's been alive and she is about on death's door, this woman has dealt with this disease for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So here's a woman who for 12 years has been desperately in need of help and can find it nowhere. This particular issue in her life would have been devastating beyond what we can imagine. Because in their culture, in their day, in their time, if a woman was having this issue, she could not touch another person. She could not go to worship. She could not go to the temple. She could not go to the synagogue. She could not go to certain public places. She couldn't sit down anywhere. She couldn't have any kind of relationship with people. In fact, if she had a husband when all this started, she almost definitely no longer had a husband. She had no friends because she couldn't talk to anybody. She was considered unclean and had to be put in ostracization, had to be excluded from all things, and that had happened every day for 12 years. What's interesting in this passage of Scripture is you have two people who seem to represent two extremities in life, but are both at the end of their human ability. One is rich, well off, one is poor. One is accepted and the other is excluded. One is like family and the other one has no one. For 12 years, the girl and the woman had led such different lives, but in this moment... Their adversity bound their souls together because at some moment we all come to the end of what we can humanly do. Over in the book of Mark, it tells us that this woman had tried everything possible. She had suffered, it tells us in Mark 5.26, a great deal under the care of many doctors. And here's the truth, that they had a, a book, a guide on how to get rid of this, and it sounds ridiculous to read some of what she had to go through. There were 11 cures listed in a book called the Talmud for this specific illness. And some were potions, but others were just kind of almost superstitious folly. For example, here are some of the remedies she would have gone through. Take of the gum of Alexandria the weight of a small silver coin. Add a loom of the same and crocus of the same. Let them be bruised together. Put it in wine. Mix it up and let her drink it. If that doesn't fix it, 
Then take Persian onions, three pints of them, boil them in wine, and then give her the onions to drink. And say, arise from thy flux. If that doesn't work, set her in a place where two roads meet. Let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and then let someone sneak up behind her and scare her and say, arise from thy flux. Doesn't that sound like a good method there? Go to stand in the road, in the middle of the road, and sneak up and frighten her, right? The scripture says how many of these has she tried? All of it. Every possible thing. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Just hanging off the edge would have been just a little tassel. For some reason in my mind, I imagine when I was growing up, my grandmother had tassels on everything. Like chairs on curtains, right? Had little tassels. I just the little tassel, and she touches just the edge of the tassel, and immediately she is healed. And Jesus says, Who was it that touched me? And I love Peter. Someone said in this situation, Peter's just switching feet in his mouth. He's taking one out to put another one in, right? Peter's like, What what do you mean who touched you? Like all of them did, Jesus. Like, how many of you touched Jesus? How many of you bumped into him? Raise your hand. That's right, Jesus. There are 4,000 here. They all touched you. What do you mean, who touched me? He's a little sarcastic here. What do you mean? They're surrounding you and pressing on you. Everybody's touching you. And Jesus says this, but someone touched me. I perceived that power came out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and shall she had been immediately healed. So here's a really cool thing. So she comes, she touches him in his garment, and then as she touches him in his garment, she's completely healed. Jesus has a conversation with her. Peter has a conversation about this. What do you mean who touched her? I felt the power go out. She comes out. She confesses to the people. It seems like a great moment for everybody in the crowd except for one person. What are you thinking if you're Jairus? Hey, man, we got... We got like Jesus, like it's really cool. You're talking to her and all, like having a full conversation here, but... My daughter, <laughs> she's about dead. We, we were on our way to see her. Now, even some scholars gone to pull and said, listen, listen, this, this woman's issue was a serious issue. But if somebody walked into an emergency room and you had a 12-year-old that was on death's bed about to die and you had a woman that came in with an issue of blood and they treated the woman with an issue of blood before they took care of the 12-year-old who was about to die, that heads would roll. I mean, if you're Jairus, you're thinking in that moment, wait a minute, Jesus, we could come back for this. Or have this discussion later. She touched you. Great. She's healed. Let's get on to the house. Jesus looks at her and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is significant. This is a woman who had no family, had no friends, not whole place of belonging. And it's the only person in Scripture that Jesus calls daughter. It's a term of intimacy. It is even though you have been displaced, even though you have been put in a place where you can't touch anybody, you can't be around anybody, you are part of the family of God. You are literally our daughter. And your faith has healed you. That was important because there was this idea out there that there were magic garments, magic things, that you could touch things and it would heal you, that you could get in the shadow of someone and could heal you. And Jesus says, it wasn't that you touched a garment, it's that you believed in me significant 
while he was still speaking. So Jesus is still having this conversation with this woman. It was probably longer than it's recorded here because in the recorded here, you do that in about a minute. But it was like a five-minute conversation, ten-minute conversation, twenty-minute conversation. This week we uh, took um, all four, first time we've ever done this, we took all four of our kids to the Southern Baptist Convention. It was the first time we've ever done it. I'm not prepared to say it's the last, but the odds are trending in that direction. All right. Right. And all week, I mean, one of the great things about the convention is we see people we haven't seen literally in years, college classmates, ministers, and we want to have conversations with them. And for some reason, our kids do not think those conversations are as interesting as we think they are. And so you hear lots of, hey, dad, is it time? It's like time to go, right? Like we need to go. Hey, Dad, what are we doing? Or just let's chase each other around this large building a lot. Like, you know, just things happen. And you're like, well, just let me have a conversation. Jesus having this conversation. I can imagine Jairus over there going like, hey, this is really cool. Uh, come on. Hey, this, we're kind of watching the clock here, Jesus. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. It's done. And then I love this, it says, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Let him go. Any worry about it. It's over. No hope. You see, I told you that there were four things that were deathly frightening to the people of this culture. First of all was weather. Second of all was evil spirits. Third was any kind of disease that you could not shake. And the fourth was death. Jesus has demonstrated in the first three that he has power and control over it, but they don't even give a thought to the fact that Jesus can do anything about this. He's dead. It's over. Jesus looks at him and says, don't be afraid. Only believe. The biggest point that they want us to understand from this passage is that we are to simply to trust Jesus, that we are to simply believe, because only in believing can we see what God can do. And she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but she is sleeping. And the people around him go, you are nuts you're crazy that's not true jesus she's dead look what it says in the next verse and they laughed at him knowing that she was dead now here's what i want you to understand in their culture in their day people knew what death looked like because they were around it much more frequently than we are Today, most people die, and this isn't a bad thing, it's just reality. Most people die in a hospital, in a home care situation, in a nursing home, assisted living place. Most deaths occur in a sterilized environment. Most deaths in their day occurred in the home. And they knew when you were dead. They knew. And they look at Jesus and they say, She's dead. People in their day and time saw death much more frequently than they do. Uh, people didn't live very long. In the first service, as I was walking in, there's a lady sits on the back row, a whole row of people, and she was telling me that tomorrow's her 90th birthday. And she said, and he's 94, and she's 95. They didn't have any 90-year-olds attending synagogue in Jesus' day. 
They didn't have very many 70-year-olds and not a lot of 60-year-olds. People died early and often. A lot of kids didn't make it. Mortality rate was high for infants. And so when they saw death, they knew death. This is not the case of, well, she just kind of fell asleep. She died, but Jesus wants them to know that just because we see physical death doesn't mean that it's really the end. Taking her by the hand, he called and said, Child, Arise. And I love this part because in the Mark, it gives us a better description of what he said. It uses a word. Luke changes it because his audience wouldn't understand it. But in Mark, it gives us a Jewish word. And he leans down to her and he uses the word like a pet name, like sweetie or honey or baby or any of the other things that the local fast food restaurant people say to you at the window. Right. How you doing, sweetie? What's going on, honey? What's up, baby? Right. Like, you know, it just happens. Right. And so. In the south, that's just where it is. But he leans down, he holds her hand, and he literally, this is what he whispers to her. Hey, baby, time to get up. It's just like a father awakening a child in the morning. Holds her hand, pats it. That's what it says in Scripture. And here it says, child arise. But in the language that Mark uses of the original Aramaic language, because Luke doesn't ever put that in there for his Greek audience, he puts it in there and he says, hey, baby, come on, time to get up. I love the picture because I think about the number of times in my life I've gone and sat on the bed with my girl, one of my two girls or my boys, and said, hey, time to get up. Come on, come on, man. Time to get up. Jesus' point is there is nothing beyond his power. He awakens the dead as easily as you awaken your child from sleep. Some of you didn't act like that's a big deal. That's a big deal. He awakens the dead as you awaken your child from sleep. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were (laughs) amazed. Wouldn't you be? And he never charged them, but he charged them. He never charged them. He wasn't charging. He wasn't a health and wealth gospel preacher. He didn't take up an offering. He, uh, He did charge them to tell no one what had happened. And two amazing miracles that happened together that show Jesus' power over death and disease. There are three things I want us to pull out of this as we think about Father's Day, as we think about parenting, as we think about life in general. Three things that I think this passage really brings forward, and then we're done today. And here's the first thing. In life, we must choose to intentionally pursue Jesus. Here's what I want you to understand. Both of these people, the Father and the woman with the issue of blood intentionally chooses to go to Jesus. And I want to tell you this, and I mean this with the, the pastor's heart and, and years of experience. If you think that spiritual growth and spiritual decision making and spiritual courage and spiritual life is just going to happen, you are mistaken. It takes intentional planning. It takes intentional effort. It takes intentionally doing something about it. I want you to think in your life of anything you've ever been good at at all and how many of those things. There's some of you just naturally gifted and you're good with stuff. But for the most part, the stuff that you're really good in life with, it takes maximum effort and energy to be good at it. You have to work at it. Some people treat following Jesus like the teenager that treats an exam at the end of the year when they said, I've been sitting in class all day. It's just naturally there. I ain't got to study for it. I ain't got to work for it. It's just there. 
We all know that if you want to get better at something, you have to intentionally pursue it. Tonight, Game 7 of the NBA Finals is going to happen, and two of the greatest players of this generation are playing against each other. And they play the game in two totally different ways. But one thing that is common between both of them is they put in unbelievable hours of practice and work to make their game right. And to follow Christ, you've got to be intentional about it. And a part of my job, part of our job, is to help equip you with that. And we, hopefully we're going to give you more and more ways to equip you with that in the future. But you also have to take advantage of those situations and pursue it. Here's the second thing this passage teaches us. You need to intentionally lead your children to Jesus. Intentionally lead your children to Jesus. The, the reason that I love this passage is that Jairus is in a time and a day. It's his only daughter, but he's in a time and a day when children didn't matter as much to their culture as they mattered to us. They did not think of them as cute children. There never would have been a song, we believe the children are our future. They would have never said that. Like, they just, children were not to be seen, not to be heard, they were not to be around. That's when Jesus says, let the children come to me. It was radically different. And this man, who has no reason to go and put himself before Jesus, Jesus might be a fraud, Jesus might not be right. He is a dad who didn't emotionally connected to his children in that day and time. He, in that day and time, you were the patriarch, you were the firm hand, you're not emotionally connected. He comes and breaks down before Jesus because of his love, and he tells her, he tells Jesus, I need you to go to my daughter. Can I tell you something? I'm to talk to the guys for just a moment, okay? Guys, this is for us. Our biggest temptation as dads, our biggest temptation as fathers is not outright wickedness. Our biggest temptation as fathers is apathy. And God has charged us to be the spiritual leaders of our homes. And part of the reason I think we look around and see the world and some of the mess that is in, it's not all the reason, but a large part of the reason is that men have decided they no longer want to fulfill the responsibility to be the people in their home that lead children to Jesus. It didn't just start with us. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. You remember Adam and Eve, right? They're in the garden. Adam's work. He's given a job. And as he comes to him, he says, Adam is given this task. And Adam is given his wife Eve. And God puts him as, as head of that household. Now, I know that that's not real popular to say in the world today. But we say lots of things that are going to become increasingly unpopular to say in the world today. But Scripture teaches that Adam is the head of that house. He is to protect her. He is to take care of her. He is to work for her. He is to provide for her. He is to spiritually lead her. And the first test we see in Scripture he has about that, he fails miserably. Because Scripture says that she's sitting there next to some fruit, a serpent comes along, and it says in the original language that Adam was standing right next to her. And as Adam is standing right next to her, the serpent comes along, you want to eat of this fruit? In Adam's mind, what he's thinking is, you know what? I, I think God told us not to eat that. Something bad could happen. It's almost like he goes, you know what? She wants to eat. I'll let her eat. She drops dead. That's a bad idea. She doesn't. I'll try a little bit. She takes a bite. Nothing happens immediately. Adam takes a bite. Everything seems to be okay until God starts walking. And when God gets there, what does he say? Does he say, hey, Eve, where are you? Is that what he says? No. Who does he call out? Adam. Where are you, Adam? What happened? 
When we get to the book of Romans and it's talking about the sin that entered the world, it does not say that sin entered the world through one woman named Eve. It says that sin entered the world through one man named Adam. Adam may not have taken the bite, but he forgot his responsibility to lead his family the way God would have him to lead. You get to David. We did the whole study of David on Wednesday nights here. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You get to that part where David has consequences that come in his life for sin with Bathsheba. One of it is his son um, violates a daughter. Now, they have different moms, but one son violates a daughter. And another son finds out about it. And he comes to David and says, you got to do something about this. And David does nothing. And the other son goes and kills the son that violated and then runs away. And then he gets a regret. He wants to come home and he wants to talk to David. He tries to come home and David refuses to see his son. He is completely disconnected from his family. He is no longer leading them as God would have them to lead. And as a result, his family absolutely falls apart. Our greatest temptation, men, is not outright wickedness, but it is not doing what God has called us to do and leading our families to Jesus. Men, it is not your wife's sole responsibility to discipline and disciple and to bring your kids to church. There's a book called Gospel-Centered Parenting I've begun to work through. And there's a statement in here, and I've tried to verify that this is wrong, and it's not, as far as I've seen. But in Gospel-Centered Parenting, it says that every single verse with commands on parenting in the Bible, is written to dads. Every single verse in the Bible written on parenting is written to dads. Listen, I take what I do here very seriously. I take these sermons very seriously. I take leading this church very seriously. I take the pastoring of this church very seriously. But my number one job in life is to be the spiritual leader of my family, to provide for my wife and to lead my kids. Elijah and Luke and Maddie and Ava. You can get another church uh, pastor. You can get another pastor. If something were to happen here, you get another pastor. I'm the only dad my kids have. And I'm gonna, my goal in life is to do everything I can. And there are some of you guys in this room there's some of you moms, listen, some of you moms are, are, are working hard and you're doing your, and I'm, it doesn't excuse you all those things towards dads, but I know some of you are working and you need help your, dad, your, your husband and we'll be praying for that. But some of you men in this room need to step up because here's the truth. At some point you're going to look back on your life with your kids or with your grandkids and you're going to wonder, did I do it right? And can I give you the, the standard? Can I give you the, the question that you ask when you do that? The question is what Jesus said about what does it profit a man to gain the world and yet lose his soul? And what does it gain you as a parent if your child makes straight A's but loses their soul? What does it gain you if they get a D1 scholarship but they lose their soul? What does it gain your child if they are in all the right clubs and do all the right activities but they lose their soul. What does it gain your child if they grow up and marry a, a, a great person and have a white picket fence and the two and a half kids and good job and they live their life, but they lose their soul? Jairus was like, I can't lose her. The only person I know that can do anything about it is Jesus. And here's the truth. The only person that can do anything permanent and eternal for your kids is Jesus. 
that dads, if you're not leading your kids to Jesus, you're not doing your God-given responsibility. Here's the third thing and then we're done. Trust Jesus. The thing behind the whole thing is just trust him. I imagine Jairus sitting there. He comes. He says, Jesus, I want to go. And he gets a glimmer of hope because Jesus says, let's go. Let's go. Let's start walking. Let's go to your house. And they start to walk. And then they have this detour. And Jairus is mad. And then Jesus is sitting there talking to this woman, this woman who's already healed. And a man comes up and says, she's dead. And Jairus is like, my world is gone. Jesus says, just believe. And he gets to the house and he walks in the house and it's just Jesus and three disciples and the mom and dad. And they walk into the room and the dad looks at her and he goes, she's dead. It's over. It's gone. And Jesus is like, just, just believe. And here's the one thing I want to tell you. This is a statement that I saw this week that I thought was so good. That when Jesus calls you to trust him, he will require more of you than you ever expected. And he will grant you more than you could ever imagined. He'll require more of you than you ever expected, but he'll give you more than you ever imagined. Like if Jairus, if you would have told him, hey, your daughter's going to have to die for Jesus to prove himself, he would have been like, no, uh-uh, I'm not doing it. But he got his girl back from the dead. I mentioned one of my favorite things is, is uh, I love going to the Southern Baptist Convention, the pastor's conference, and um, getting to hear some great sermons and getting to hear from our organizational's heads and on Monday of last week, David Platt, who's the president of the IMB, told a story about how sometimes things don't make sense, but Jesus is enough. And he told this story, and he said, I'm going to narrow this down as much as I can for you. And he said, there are some missionaries of ours in Southeast Asia. And in Southeast Asia, they have started to witness to a group of people, and a couple of converts, local people from Asia, have become followers of Jesus Christ, and had started walking into this village, telling people about Jesus who had never heard the story. He said, one of the cool things about being the IMB president is you get to hear these stories. He said, so this missionary of ours was talking to him, and they had gone, this couple had gone into the, the into this tribe that had never heard of Jesus, tell them about Jesus. And people started to think that maybe this Jesus is right. And they would say things like, maybe this is true, maybe this is right. And they started to see people from the community, all the people were wearing necklaces, they were wearing um, bracelets, they were wearing... Amulets. They were wearing all this stuff. And they began to take them off and they brought them into the center of town. And almost like it was something out of the New Testament. They were building a pot where they were going to have a bonfire of all of that stuff and they were going to start following Jesus. And so this Asian couple of guys walk back into the village one day and they suddenly see that all these people are taking their stuff out of the pile back to their house. And they're a little confused. They're like, what's, what's going on? What, what's happening here? They asked one of the locals and they said, well, last night the chief of the village died. And all these people think that it's because we took off all of our jewelry and our amulets and that the spirits are getting back at us because we did that. This Asian God and friend were like, oh, literally stopped and said, Lord, what are you doing? And these people had almost come to faith. These people were about ready to follow you. And then this happens? God, what are you doing in the midst of that? So they were heartbroken. They Like, I can't believe what happened here. And so they just took a thing and thought, they went back to their place and they thought, what are we going to do? How do we turn this around? They're not going to let us talk about Jesus anymore because Jesus didn't protect their chief. I said, well, the first thing we've got to do is let these people know we care. And so we're going to go back the next day. We're going to offer our condolences to the people. 
So go back the next day, and in this particular culture, they, the guy who had died was laid in state in his home. People would come by, visit the family. They left him there for two or three days, and they would go bury him. This is like the third day, second or third day, and they go in, and they see the wife, and they say, we just want to offer our condolences, and she says, thank you for coming, and, you know, just distraught. And then they walk over and they kind of look at the guy because that's what you did. You went and you looked over him and they thought, we're just going to pray over him while we're sitting here. But they, did, they just prayed a prayer of, God, we don't know what's happening in this place. We really don't know what you're doing in this village. We believe these people want to come to you. So could you please show them your grace and your power and your majesty and let them know that you are the one true God. And while they were praying that, the guy coughed. And they were like, okay. David Platt said the room got silent and the guy coughed again. And then he began to cough and he sat up. And before long, they were helping him stand up. And as they were helping him stand up, he began to talk to them. And these guys thought this is as good a time as any to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? And they preached on that Jesus has power to raise the dead. The whole town came to know Christ, began to follow him. Things are happening. They're beginning to take it to other tribes. Now, here's what David Platt said. He said, nah, some of you are like me. You hear that story, you're like, was he really dead? Like, he just kind of took a long nap, you know, maybe. And he said, the missionary, the IMB missionary that was over there said, if he wasn't dead, God sure did pick an opportune time for him to cough. Amen? And the point is that the God who raised the dead here in Luke chapter 8 is the same God that we serve today. And you can absolutely trust Him with whatever's going on in your life. Let's bow together and pray.